A global pandemic. A collapsing economy. Social distancing flattening the curve. Have we ever been here before as a society? What about Passover and Easter this week? How does it all go together? And why should I care what these two guys have to say about it? Welcome, everybody, to the Beards and Bible podcast. My name is Josh, and I'm here with my good friend, Dave. Dave, how's it going? It's going going great. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, I don't really think people care when they listen to podcasts, how the people that are recording the podcast were doing at the time they recorded. But I think it's courteous for me to ask you, because I I care. But, uh, I mean, I don't know. When you listen to podcasts, do you care? That the people who recorded that podcast, how they were doing at the time that they were recording that podcast? Um, you know, it depends on the level of connectivity I feel like I have with the host of the podcast. I think um, there's some people that just, I, I, to be honest with you, there's a podcast that I put on just so it knocks me out asleep um, at what night. What my podcast mind's... became that? Um, that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that if this becomes <laughs> one of these sleepy podcasts, but... You know, I think I, I consider that an honor that you you would fall asleep to our voices. Well, um, I, this is this is all brand new for me, so hopefully this podcast doesn't turn into that uh, quicker than anything else. Uh, you've done this before. I have not done this this whole thing called podcasting. Um, how's this work? Yeah. Just goes on somebody's radio, or record it to a cassette, and it just kind of comes <laughs> to the house and. Yeah, um, we record it. Yeah, like you said, we record it to cassette, and then we mail out tapes when they make okay. um, when they when they make a seed donation. Is that um, is that anything like the new iPod? I've heard that language yeah. used before. Yeah. yeah, no, but for I think for for nerdy people like us, um, podcasts are um, kind of a way of life. You know, when it, when I don't know, it's just even my kids though. My kids know what podcasts are, and they ask for a podcast at night. So it's wow. it's so interesting that like we've we've gotten to this point in our in our civilization where you know my kids would rather listen to some British guy read them a, a nighttime story than me read them a nighttime story. So I'm <laughs> like, okay, approach. yeah, deal. Let's, let's keep this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the whole point of what we're trying to do, we're attempting to do, is not create just background noise for people to fall asleep to. Which, if you choose to do that, whatever, cool. We're glad we can help, but we're attempting to create a podcast about life, theology, friendships, current events, and the journey of authentic discipleship. And uh, we're, we're doing it under the title Beards and Bible. And of course, you can't see our faces, but I will have you know, dear listener, that we are both bearded gentlemen. Yeah, I, I'd even be willing to like cut off a, a snippet of my beard and mail it to someone who is questioning yeah. whether or not we both have beards. Along with uh, cassettes of this show. That people yeah. should pull oh, yeah. on their phonographs. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Gabe, you want to tell everybody like how we know each other and how long we've known <laughs> each other and a brief history of, of our friendship? Yeah. Uh, well, it goes way back to, gosh, was it 2003? Fall of 2003, oh. we met. Um, we, went to, we went to college together. We were both freshmen and we were introduced um, by a mutual friend. And then um, our friendship blossomed from there. Yes. We had a lot of similar interests in music, and we even played in a band together. We did. One um, might say we were the voice of a generation. This yeah. band that we only recorded one album, and by album I mean it was like five songs in somebody's garage. Yeah, that was good times. I played drums, you played guitar, and you were the front man and, and songwriter for the band. Mm. Um, but that was some some wonderful memories. Absolutely. And then um, you know, went on from there. You. Uh, let's see who got married first. I got married first and you were mm-hmm. in my wedding and then you even took your music into my wedding. I remember you played a very beautiful song. At my wedding. Oh, that's right. I totally and forgot then, about um, that. Can we describe it as beautiful? It was very <laughs> enchanting, enchanting. <laughs> what I remember about your wedding, I remember two things about your wedding. The first is I remember your wife's family, uh, cooked the greatest barbecue pork. I think I've ever seen before <laughs> in my entire life. Yeah. Well, my, my wife's uncle killed the boar uh that week if not just you know within a couple was of it days, wild boar is that why it tasted so good from what i understand yeah he actually killed it back okay. in the swamps and uh, well that, that was wrong. the best pork i think i've ever had so that's the first thing i remember the second thing i remember was you and your wife left on a moped 
and you guys were so excited and we had bird seed that we were throwing out. Well, not to be like outdone or have my masculinity um, in the least bit repressed. Cause I think I had seen the movie 300 the night before oh. I decided that the bird seed in my hands should turn into a projectile. And so I hid behind a tree and right when you and your wife, Stacy were coming around the corner. Do you remember this? Yes. I actually have a photo of this moment when okay. you're coming around that tree. Yeah. I, I came on the tree it. and it was like slow motion. I reared back to throw the bird seed in your face and as it was leaving my hand. I was like, Oh no. Cause I realized <laughs> you could wreck in front of your entire family and guests and it could be completely tragic, but you didn't, you no. did the little death wobble for a little bit and you got yes, back I did. On the, on the I, I, um, I recovered from the death wobble and yeah. uh, Stacy was sitting on the back with a white dress on and that would just been, um, <laughs> It would have been hilarious. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, but yeah, uh, it would have been hilarious like a year after. Yes, when you but guys finally was, paid off the medical bills from the great crash that would have happened yeah. as a result of that. So, oh man, good times. Well, uh, it's been uh, 17 years, I guess, since we first met and had a lot of wow, life together. It's crazy. That's a lot crazy. of a lot of laughs. Um, you are now serving as a uh, a pastor or what, what should I say your title would be? I tell, I tell people you can call me anything except brother Gabe. Um, mm, I like yeah, Gabe. equivalent of a pastor. We, we have kind of like, yeah. Um, we, we kind of have an eldership, uh, role at our congregation, um, where we have three elders that, uh, are kind of the forefront of the spiritual development and direction of the congregation. And I'm the most, probably the most visible of the three. I get up and I teach quite often. Um, I usually teach about two weeks or three weeks in a row. And then I take a week off and let someone sub in for me. So I'm the most visible, but yeah, you know, the, the best way to translate would be like the equivalent of a pastor or something like that. Very cool. And you are in a messianic congregation. Yeah. Yeah. Not Masonic. So we're not. Okay. A <laughs> you want to tell listeners kind um, of what that is a messianic congregation yeah. for those who might not be familiar with it. Yeah, messianic. So messianic is an adjective, and we love adjectives, don't we? Um, people people love adjectives, but messianic just an adjective which just just describes um, we are trying to be messiah like. Um, mm. Now, there's a lot of all kinds of baggage and thing. If you Google the word messianic, you're gonna come up with all kinds of stuff on the internet. But every congregation is different; it has its own identity and style and flavor and DNA itself. But we just that just means that we're trying to worship. We're trying to study scripture. We're trying to raise our kids um, like the Messiah would have, or like he did. And um, that, that takes on a form sometimes that looks um, very Jewish because, you know, he was a, a practicing Jew. Um, sure. But a, a, some practicing Jews today would look at us and say, that's very Christian. So, um, we're kind of in this, in this odd place of being kind of like a foot in both camps, kind of a bridge. We like to say between the two faiths. Um, but yeah, so the best way, and one of the ways I describe people, like the nutshell way is that we follow Jesus in a Jewish way. Very cool. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. So, so that being said, things like you guys celebrate Passover. um, Yes. And that we'll, we'll talk about that later on this episode. You guys, um, your worship style will be different. So you guys usually meet together on Saturdays which would be yes, Shabbat. Yeah. Um, so most of the traditional Jewish uh, holy days, you guys would observe those and celebrate those. Is that kind of my yeah, understanding? Yeah. Yep. yep. You got it. So we just, um, we just started actually tomorrow, tomorrow night as we're recording, this is tomorrow night. We'll start the first of seven uh, Torah or, or um, Pentateuch commanded um, holy days and Passover starts tomorrow night. And then we'll go into, you know, for, uh, Feast of First Fruits and Pentecost, and then so on. It keeps on going throughout the year from there. So we're starting right cool. at the top of this yearly cycle of holy days that we're about to celebrate. That's awesome, man. Very cool. Yeah. Well, um, so a lot of different perspectives that Gabe brings to the table, not just from his uh, what he does in terms of ministry, but also his life and his experiences. And uh, um, I myself am a, a, a one, one might call a pastor. Depends on who's asking. So, brother Josh. No, I make my people call me apostle. <laughs> yeah. No, I. Uh, I, I actually don't. I don't know about you. Like it. I. I'm so blessed to, to do what I do, and I love the fact that I get to teach God's word and 
uh, shepherd God's people. But man, sometimes I just don't feel very pastorly in the mm-hmm. sense of like, I don't feel very comfortable with the kind of pastor talk and pastor language, you know, bless God, brother. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, man. I just, I, well, there, there is a certain cadence, you know, that comes with being a, a pastor. You can, you can pick them out of a restaurant almost. You hear them talk and it's like, you know, I, I grew up a pastor's son, so I'm very, very familiar. I've, I've hung around yeah, pastors it, yeah. all my life and I can, I can pick them out of crowd. I can say, you're either a used car salesman or you're a pastor. You know? <laughs> and it's like, I can, which one are you? Are you both? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, um, I don't know, man. I, I don't, I don't really fit well into that mold. I love uh, the Lord. I love his word. I love his people. And I'm very blessed to um, be put in the role that I'm in to shepherd his people and to teach his word. But um, I'm, I'm becoming more comfortable with the title pastor. Um, although I think the, the role I've been comfortable in for a while, but just all the, the baggage that goes with it. Does that make sense? Sure, um, I'm learning how to, to get more comfortable with that. But um, well, I, think, I think when when you describe yourself as a pastor um, or people identify you as such, uh, they immediately put on the facade or something like that. They can't yes. be themselves around you because they feel like you're um, you know, like you're wearing like a white collar or something. Oh, yeah. or something hey, so have you had that weird experience of sitting on an airplane and somebody asks you what you do and you tell them what it is you do and then automatically it's like the wall goes up. You ever had that experience yet? Um, not on an airplane, but in other places. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that's, that's really unfortunate because, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, they, they, it's like dating, you know, when you're dating a girl, it's like, you're not going, you're, you're going to put on a front to a certain extent. They're not yes. going to see the 100% real genuine you. And I think yep. people have that response, that kind of knee jerk response of being around, someone who's of the cloth, you know, it's like, sure. Oh, yeah. It's but, almost like people start telling you what it is. They think that you want to hear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's like, uh, they feel like they've got to clean up what it is they say, cause you're scrutinizing every single word that they say. And so they can't be real around you. And so I think sometimes the pressure that comes with being a pastor mm-hmm. is you sometimes feel like, well, this is just me. I don't know how you feel, but you feel like you can't be real about other people because yeah they think that around you. And so I guess my hopes for our times together in this podcast is that, um, you and I can just be ourselves, you know, um, we're two guys that take God's word serious and take, uh, the Lord very serious and what he's called us to do very serious. But at the same time, we don't take ourselves very serious at all. And I think, I think part of it is that you and I both, um, went to school, and we're in college. Um, we we didn't have the intention of doing this and leading and shepherding no. a, a flock like this. Um, I, I went to school to, to teach history, um, to be a school teacher, and I still am a school teacher. But you went to school for English, mm-hmm. um, and with a minor in like living under a bridge or something, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much as useless as that. Yeah, living under a bridge or living in a van down by the river. Yeah. Do you actually know my think- minor? I no, I, I don't. Thinking, what is it? It's uh, it was um, English and intercultural studies. I think you, your sister and I had the same degree. I believe. Oh, okay, okay, classes, yeah. Which translates to pretty much useless. Intercultural. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like you know, it's totally useless. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's right. I didn't go to school to do this. You didn't go to school to do this, and it kind of feels like uh, God just came and got both of us, and sure. it was like yeah. all of that was. Um, I don't know. You couldn't fight it. it. It just kind of felt like the Lord put you exactly where it is that you needed to be and opened every door for you. And then you wake up one day and people are calling you pastor and you're like, uh, okay, if you say so. <laughs> What's well, it's interesting because it's like a, it, it's hard to describe. It's an inexplicable burden for other people's spiritual health. And it's yes. so indescribable and so inexplicable to say, you know, when I wake up in the morning, people come to my mind and I worry about people and I pray for people at three o'clock in the morning when I wake up, um, thinking about situations or marital stuff or this and that. And you're like thinking, man, and it's like all these things are rolling and it's like, who put this on me? You know, like I, I, it's not like I sought this out or anything like that. It's like, Mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's just completely inexplicable, but you just kind of grow into this role of like, I'm, I'm shepherding these people. And I'm so, um, I love these people so much. 
And I want to be a connection point between them and scripture, between them and the creator. Yes. Yes. Um, and, I, think and I, love how you, I love how you said that. It's, it's something that you, <laughs> more that you are rather than what you do. I don't know if that makes sense or mm-hmm. not. Sure. Um, yeah. That, that God has given you all a burden and a heart and a calling and, and, and infused his Holy Spirit in you. So you've got that gifting, whether you like it or not. Um, of course, I think someone can run from that gifting and, you know, quench the spirit in that. But, um, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing and a mysterious thing and a crazy thing and a funny thing all at the same time, this whole gig of pastoring. Yeah, I would say that's emotionally, you know, it's and just the experiences. And I've been doing this for about two years. It's like um, the stories already, the, the stories of yeah. redemption, the stories of transformation, the stories of of the opposite, you know, you're like people turning from it. And um, it's like, it's such a roller coaster of experiences that I wouldn't trade for the world that, you know, it's like so rewarding. Um, but at the same time, it's to be so crushing. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah. you, know, you, you kind of understand now when Paul writes in his letters and he just is like so ticked off and says all these crazy things. Yeah. Like, man, what's wrong with Paul? Like, he's, he's a little strong. And then you, live it out for a while and you go, Oh, not comparing yeah. you and I to Paul, but you know, in one sense, I guess we could uh, compare ourselves to that. But Hey, so pastoring right now is a little different than it has been in the past because as we're recording this right now, we're in the midst of probably the, uh, single most, um, defining historical event of our entire generation. And that is we are in the midst of a global pandemic with the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, we don't have to really explain that to anybody listening to this because you're probably affected too, no matter who you are. So Gabe, have you Mm -hmm. ever seen anything like this in your whole life? Um, Absolutely not. I mean, the closest thing that comes to it would be 9-11. But that was... uh, I mean, it was seen, it was watched by the whole globe, but it wasn't this prolonged um, effect like we are experiencing now. So absolutely not. It's, just, um, it's still surreal to me when you were just describing it just you know, 30 seconds ago. I was like, whoa, yeah, this is the past hundred years is probably the most prolific historic event. Yeah. That what, what do you think had. besides 9-11 we could compare this to historically? I mean, September 11th uh, was for our generation. I mean, we were both in high school when that happened. And so I remember guys yeah. that we went to school with both in high school and college were signing up to go fight overseas. And, you know, the mm-hmm. world changed, the airline travel changed, the economy changed, the politics changed, everything changed. But, you know, beyond that, I mean, can you think of anything else in our parents' generation or in our grandparents' generation that looked anything like well, this? Yeah, I would say I would say World War II was the closest thing to it that yeah. um, that that kind of had the whole world in this moment of um, uh, confusion and the moment of uncertainty, wondering is fascism going to be the new thing? You know, that's going to the the pandemic of the 1930s and 40s. Sure. Um, I would say that's the closest thing we can we can. And I mean, in terms of like uh, human loss of life, uh, so far, you know, I think. World War II is definitely surpassing COVID-19. Yeah. But um, it didn't have it, – it, you couldn't feel World War II in Dothan, Alabama. Um, right. And, you know, like where I'm at here, it's like you couldn't feel World War II in Puerto Rico or you couldn't feel right. World War II in Peru. But you go to Peru and you go to Uganda right now, you're going to experience uh, evidences of a pandemic. Sure. So in some ways, World War II was more catastrophic, but in some ways, COVID-19 and this pandemic is more, uh, I don't know, just more just universally affecting everyone in our world right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's interesting. There's a there's a gentleman that goes to our church. He's 84, I want to say. And I asked him that same question. I I saw his name, Mark. And I said, Mark, have you ever seen anything like this in your whole life? He said, no. He said the closest thing I can remember as a kid, he grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and he talked about how they would have to do um, at night, they'd have to do blackouts across mm-hmm. the city because it was kind of like a, um, a mandatory precautionary measure because they were basically practicing to get bombed. 
And I didn't know this off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida. He said, you could see German U-boats in the water at night. And um, he said that this was so interesting to me. He said the difference between then and now is everyone in Jacksonville, Florida realized there was one singular enemy that they had to join together to defeat. And Mm -hmm. so you didn't see people hoarding toilet paper. You didn't see people pushing each other in the, you know, grocery stores. You you saw people working together and there was this unified home front effort against a common enemy. And unfortunately, we haven't seen that as much here now in our generation. It kind of seems like in, in a lot of ways, we can't really agree on what the best approach is to stop this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like every man for himself kind of, kind of situation. Um, what's, what's crazy about it is like, I mean, just a few weeks back, maybe a month ago, I was sitting down on the couch with, with my sons and we were watching this woman who grew up in the County where I live now and during the Spanish flu pandemic. And, um, you know, she was just sharing all her experiences living in rural Southern Alabama during the flu pandemic. And her family was the only family in their small community that did not contract this, this flu. And so their family was, it was expected of them that they would do things like dig graves, um, make soup from sunup to sundown, chop firewood, gather firewood, um, do laundry for people. And all these kids, every kid in the family had a role to play. And the woman um, who passed now, but um, when she was, I think she was nine years old that this was happening, she was um, in charge and she was tasked with taking all the chicken soup that her mother would make and taking it, in, I think she said wagons and dropping it on the front porch and the front stoop of these houses, knocking on the door and then running away and wow. allowing them to get the soup um, without her contracting the, the flu. And it's so wow. crazy because last night we had um, some missionaries just come in from Myanmar who were forced to fly back um, and leave Miami. The, the government said, you have to leave. So they had to hurry up, purchase plane tickets and, and get out of there. But now they're serving a 14-day quarantine, quarantine here in, in rural Alabama, um, and you know they they um, are hurting for food. They're you know they they can't go to the grocery store, wow. and they're hurting financially as well. But it's crazy because me and my boys just drove over to their house last night and delivered chicken soup and a couple other meals, and we basically you know put it on the back of their car and kind of just had to take a step back because we had to keep a distance from them. But I was sure. like, it's so crazy that this is playing out to a certain extent in my lifetime. Like what she was right. just talking about. In wow. It was so bizarre. That's, that is bizarre. And I think what's interesting is I asked my dad, has he ever seen anything like this in his lifetime? He said, no. I asked my friend Mark, who's in his eighties, had he ever seen anything like this? He said, no. But if we went back a little bit further in 1918, we would probably hear stories similar to the ones that we're experiencing right now um, with things like social distancing and face masks and things getting shut down, schools, churches. And um, I didn't really know what to, I don't know about you. I'll just ask you this. The hardest thing for me when all this stuff came out on the news is I had no frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Right. So if this was anything like September 11th, I could have thought back to 2001 and been like, oh, okay. I remember how that felt. Or I could have called my dad and said, hey, dad, this sounds like the Watergate scandal. This sounds like something you lived through. But the thing is, I didn't have anything as a frame of reference. And I felt very, just to be honest, anxious that first week this all came out. And so what I did is I went on Amazon and I started uh, looking up books about the Spanish flu and Mm. found a book called, and I'll show it to you, uh, flu by Gina Colada. Um, our listeners can't see this, obviously I'm holding it up to, to Gabe. He can see it. Um, Mm. and this is going to sound so weird and I hope it doesn't sound morbid, but like reading the history of pandemics actually brought me a lot of comfort because this is not the first time humanity has been here before. And actually, if you look historically at pandemics, through the last 3,000 years, COVID-19 is actually pretty mild in comparison mm-hmm. to a lot of the ones that you see throughout history. Yeah. So I just jotted some things down. Uh, this uh, first real plague that we know of was recorded. I hope that I say this right. 
It was a Greek uh, historian. His name was uh, Theucides. I think that's how you say his name. And it was the plague of Athens in 430 BC. And um, it was 25% of the population of Athens died. And if you got the flu or you got the whatever it was, the plague, um, you were instantly dead. Um, the Black Death or the bubonic plague in Europe, uh, that was 75 to 200 million people that died in about a, let's see, seven-year period. So a third of Europe died in a seven-year period. Um, hmm. There were actually seven cholera pandemics. And the third cholera pandemic was considered the most deadly. That was from 1852 to 1860. There was one million people that died in that. Uh, the Spanish flu that you were talking about was 1918 and 1920. And that was 500 million cases with anywhere from 20 to 50 million deaths. That's unreal <laughs> to think yeah, about that. And then here's one I thought was so interesting. And Gabe, you've been to Africa. I've been to Africa. You've done mission work over there. I have too. The HIV AIDS epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa in the years 2005 and 2012 was responsible for 36 million deaths. Yeah, that's crazy. And in the year uh, 2005, there were 2.2 million deaths from HIV AIDS. And even now, 5% of the population is affected with HIV AIDS. So I'm not trying to downplay COVID-19 at all. It's bad. I mean, it's growing. It's bad. People are dying. But when you look at it, in comparison to the historical pandemics, it kind of, I don't know, puts it in its place a little bit more. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think the biggest difference between all those and, and today's pandemic is media. The fact that, I mean, this is the first social media um, driven pandemic, not, not driven, that's not the word, but um, promoted pandemic. I mean, we have, like, I, I can communicate to someone on the other side of the globe. I can pick up my phone and call them. And this is, that's only in the past, you know, 10 years that you'd have to be the ability to do that. So um, we all know about so much more going on around our globe. The world has gotten so much smaller in the last 10, 15, 20 years. It's, it's the smallest it's ever been in terms of, of mass communication and um, disseminating information. So I think we feel it a lot more for sure. We yeah. feel what's going on in Italy. We feel what's going on in Iran and in China and South Korea. We can, and so we can kind of see those things coming as well, which I think adds to the anxiety because when I wake up in the morning, one of the first things that I have a tendency of doing is getting down and sit, sitting at, behind a, my phone or, or laptop and getting out YouTube and watching a news recap from the night prior. Yeah, too. Um, and it's like, I can see what's going on in the world condensed down to 10 minutes. And that's the first, one of the first pieces of information I take in for that day. Yeah. Um, and I just don't know that we're made to take in that much information about what's going on. Yeah. I don't I mean, know that our psyches can handle that. That, uh, that is a really good point. I mean, I think about people, like I said, the 102 years ago, I mean, you're living in, uh, you know, you're, you're in lower Alabama, LA, right? Mm -hmm. I'm in rural Tennessee yeah, right. right now. I mean, anybody living where we're living 102 years ago in, in 1918, you're, you're probably maybe reading newspaper headlines once a week if you're lucky. Yeah. And you're seeing a little bit of what's happening in your own state and a little bit of what's happening outside the community. But for the most part, I mean, you're more focused on your family surviving, getting by. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, that is an interesting thing to think about. Maybe, I mean, maybe the, sad, the sad truth is like, I know more about what people are experiencing with this disease in New York city than I do if I were to walk down my own street right now, which just has about 10 houses on it and, and ask yeah. them. Um, I don't even know all their names, let alone if they are, if anyone in their family or in their network of friends is struggling with, with COVID-19, I just don't know. Um, and that's the yeah. world that we live in. Like we know more about what's going on in the existential realm of like, you know, uh, 6,000 miles away versus in my own neighborhood. Whereas I think a hundred years ago, it would have been completely reversed. I would have known everything that's going on down my road exactly. and everyone I know, you know, what they're struggling with, what they need materially speaking. Um, it's just a completely different, it's a different ball game for sure. Yeah. I think something super interesting is um, in, in this book flu, but, but Gina Colada, I, there was a whole 
part of it where she talks about how after the epidemic ended in 1920, um, for the most part, his historians didn't want to write about it. Um, people who survived it didn't want to talk about it. And mm-hmm. for the most part, it was nothing but a footnote in history. And it really was overshadowed by the Great War, what we know as World War One, and then later World War II, and then in the 1930s, the Great Depression. And so I think one of the reasons why so many of us felt so shell-shocked and are feeling shell-shocked and we're surprised as a society, maybe is because we, we haven't really been good historians. Um, maybe because we haven't done the hard work of actually thinking through, has this ever happened before? Did people survive it? And maybe because of our comfort, convenience, and ease of life, we've thought that this is normal. We've thought that this is how every generation is supposed to live. And when something like this happens, as it has happened many times in history before, and we've just never experienced it, or we've never read about it, or we've never known about it, we think this is awful. We're not going to survive it. And the anxiety and the panic shoots to the roof. Um, Interesting to think through, though, why we uh, as a culture just decided we weren't going to talk about it anymore after it was over. And and she in the book gives a lot of reasons for that. She thinks that it was probably too painful for a lot of people to talk about and to think about. Um, Yeah, it's probably oversaturation. Just, you know, I mean, I I don't want to see any other, um, you know, newsreel about COVID-19 for years to come after this. So, yeah, I can see how. um, Yeah, I think. That, that's definitely part of it. But I think also just that our, our memory, um, you know, I was talking to my students, I teach history, American history. Um, and one of the, the questions I threw out to them the last week or week before was how long do you think it takes for an event, uh, like, a, like an intense and cataclysmic event in human history to be all but forgotten from the human psyche? Um, and some of them said a hundred years, some of them said it never gets forgotten. Um, I'm just looking through my textbook here that I actually teach from, and I, wanted, I was curious to see how much ink on the page is actually de- actually designated for the Spanish flu. Um, and I think all wow. would see, but I think, I think as I turning here, I think it takes about three generations for us to forget something in terms of like intimate knowledge of that event. Sure. So take, um, okay. So I've got, yeah, I've got maybe one solid page in my high school history, which is, this is actually a college textbook that I use to teach from. I've got one page de- dedicated to the Spanish flu wow. in this textbook. of. So how many do you have to World War One in, in terms of comparison? Um, World War One's is probably going to be a dozen or so, if I had to guess, maybe eight, eight, ten, who doesn't, I can't say for wow. sure. But You um, know, what's interesting <laughs> about that is more people died in the Spanish flu than in World War One. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 I would say I've got, I would say I've got um, eight to 10 pages of World War One here. That you know, that, that reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes when Solomon makes the remarks that uh, what has been, um, I'm, abbrevi- I'm trying to uh, give my Josh paraphrase, uh, but basically he says, there's no memory of things that have been, you mm-hmm. know, that generation comes, a generation goes and nobody remembers them. Nobody even remembers their name. Nobody remembers what they've done. Um, and we live our lives and we don't remember how it felt for other generations. And, and I think sometimes we feel um, like we're the most important and we're the only ones that matter. And, um, you know, our experience is the only ones that are, you know, truly human and, and being alive right now is the, you know, the most important thing ever. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're, it looks like you're. I was looking up Ecclesiastes one eleven or one ten yeah. or eleven. Um, is there is there a case where anyone can say, "Look, this is new. Um, it's, it's already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and those to come will not be remembered by those who follow after." It's like, oh wow, that's yes. so so depressing, but it's so true. I mean, it takes about like Absolutely. I said, about three generations for something to be washed out of our memory to yeah. where it's just ink on a page. And we're disconnected from that event, like you know, nine eleven, for instance. I cannot sit in a classroom and teach the emotions that I felt on nine eleven to my eleventh and twelfth graders. It's just I can't do it. And yeah. so, you know, 
teachers that come after me, they're going to have an even harder time teaching that. But, um, you know, which is we're, we're going to be talking about Passover, which is the, one of the underlying themes and uh, the pillars of the Passover experience. God says in Exodus 12, you must remember this day. You must teach mm. it to your children. Your, your children will ask you, why is this night different? And you have to keep that memory alive and going. Um, don't let that, you know, fade out of your collective memory yeah. as a nation. That's so interesting to think what happens when we do is uh, we have no real frame of reference by which to process the things that happen in our lives um, that, that come our way. Um, so, I mean, do you, before we get into Passover, do you, do you see any silver linings in this whole thing? I mean, I know, I hope nobody listens yes. to this. Like, Man, <laughs> this is horrible. These guys are just reminding me of how awful this whole thing is. Um, what, yeah. what silver linings do you, I mean, I certainly have noticed some, but how about for you and your family? And well, death is terrible. People dying. It, I wish it did not happen. It's not the way that God created us. It's not his original intent. Mm-hmm. Um, but through this calamity, um, there will be people questioning their worldviews all around the globe. There will be people whose idols are being shaken to their very core who will say, wait a second, I, I put my hope in um, chariots and horses, and now they're sitting at the bottom of the Red Sea. And, you know, those kinds of moments of saying, this has failed me. What is eternal in this world? Because I want to I want to chase after that. Um, that's the silver lining. I think is a lot. That's probably the biggest silver lining I can see is that a lot of people are going to say, you know, there's a lot of people instead of sitting in a church pew, they're going to be sitting, you know, hopefully around a, a dining room table or around their living room with their family. And those kids are going to be watching their dad turn the pages in his Bible. And, you know, the TV will go off and maybe they'll have discussions or and things like that. You know, I hope, I hope things like that are happening in the, yes. in the United yeah, States of America and, right now. And I think, that's that's so true in that you know it's showing some of us how um unstable the foundations that we've built our lives upon actually are and i think it's also exposing for some people how uh things that have been their idols ultimately don't satisfy um yeah in the sense that i feel like one of the gods that we worship here in america is entertainment and when someone is quarantined at their home for days on end they have nothing but what it is they've worshiped for so long. I mean, they've got their Netflix account, they've got prime, they've got, you know, all these things, but there comes a point in time when somebody hits a ceiling and they realize, man, this doesn't satisfy this. This isn't what I really truly want. This, this thing is incomplete. And my hope and prayer is in that, that people will reach out and say, what is it that I was created for? What is it that I truly want? What is it I'm truly hungry for? Um, and it's more than just entertainment. It's more than just comfort and ease. And, um, you know, and I also think we're super busy as a society at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it, it yeah. gives me great comfort to see God hitting the pause button on our lives so we can <laughs> refocus and repent and, and rest. And I'm talking more yeah. about me than anybody else. Yeah, it reminds me of the passages um, God, God talks about people of Israel should should. Uh, work the land for six years and the seventh year you should have let the land lay fallow. And then he says, you know, eventually if you disobey me, if you don't observe these cyclical times of, you know, agriculture in your land, I will have to remove you from the land and let the land have its Sabbath, let the land lay fallow, but you have to be out of the equation. So I think, I think he, he does have a, a pattern of behavior and, and there's this theme in scripture where if you are not, um, allowing him to, to express himself using that small, that it's still small voice that he will silence everything else around you. So then to give you that opportunity, here it is. I want you to hear me speak to you. Wow. Um, and have that, that the, let the land have its Sabbath, so to speak. Absolutely. Well, tell us uh, a little bit about Passover. Passover for you guys is tomorrow night. Well, yes, I yeah, you guys. Yeah. It's, for, it's universally celebrated by. Yeah. Uh, We're the last uh, family in the world that celebrates. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So tomorrow yeah, night, it's, uh, it's, which is Wednesday, April eighth. So whenever this podcast goes out, and whenever anybody's listening to this. Yeah. So, 
What is Passover? Why do you celebrate it? Just for anybody that would not know. Well, Passover initially comes on the scene in Exodus chapter 12. And those who are familiar, maybe you've watched, you know, the Prince of Egypt and everything. Oh, <laughs> At least know that story, right? Um, it's, it's the story of the liberation of the people who are from bondage. Um, and I talked about how, um, you know, it's about embedding it in, in a collective and national psyche that, hey, I did this for you. I was your salvation. I was your redeemer. I brought you out. While you didn't do anything to earn this, I heard your cries, your pleas for salvation. I brought you out and I redeemed you um, and I bought you as my people. I purchased you at a price. Um, and it, it's all about remembering that. But part of having something in your collective memory is also one of the reasons why we do this is so we don't forget, but also so so that we can look forward to something to come. Or we have, like you said, a frame of reference. It's really important to have those frame of references. So like we, you know, right now on YouTube, it's it's blowing up like crazy. People, um, um, survivors from the 1918 uh, pandemic, this, the Spanish flu pandemic, that's YouTube is recommending tons of those videos that people really want to watch those videos to get a frame of reference to people who live through that. What was it like? Am I going to be okay through this? But Passover was and is that frame of reference for people, for the, the nation of Israel and the Gentiles who join themselves to it. Um, uh, the very word Passover is Pesach in Hebrew. The idea behind Pesach is so much more than just passing over um, and just kind of skipping over. Um, oddly enough, the word, and I wrote down a couple of occurrences here, it actually can mean to be made lame or to, to make something hesitate or hmm. to skip over. Um, and I got to I got to reading some of the other occurrences, like First Kings eighteen twenty one, um, where Elijah is like, "Hey guys, how long are you going to falter between the Lord God of Israel and Baal? Stop doing this and decide which one you're going to go with." That word falter there that's being used in First Kings eighteen is that word Pesach. So it's like this it's like this hesitation. How long are you going to hesitate and be reluctant? So when God says. When I see the blood of this lamb on your, in the Hebrew, it's mezazot, it's the doorpost. When I see that on your doorpost, I, the, I will cause the destroyer to hesitate. I will cause the destroyer, um, I will cause him to go limp, is how you could also read, or go, go lame. And he will skip over. I'll cause him to, to hesitate. Wow. And he will go over. Um, so it's almost yeah, like so that's, the language of disarming or yeah, uh, yeah. deflating the, the destroyer that's coming after the people of God. Yeah. It's the idea that he's like, he is shielding the doors of Israel. And even to this day, observant Jews will put these things on their doorposts on those mezuzot and on there will be, um, it's a little, it's a little box and they'll nail it to their doorpost. And yeah. inside that little box will be a parchment that has all of Deuteronomy six. in it. these words are I command you today there to be, you know, teach them diligently to your children, but it goes on and says, bind them as a sign on your hand. Um, and it goes, write them on the doorpost of your house and upon your gate. So that's ah. really fulfilling the command, putting that on the doorpost. Right. But on that mezuzah, it has the word Shaddai on it for El Shaddai. Um, and that could be further broken down as Shaddai is Shomer Dalatot Yisrael, which is the, the guardian of the doors of Israel, which wow. goes back to the first Passover. The idea is the destroyer is being sent out over the land of Egypt to go into the homes and destroy the firstborn of every family. But the God of Israel is guarding the doors of those who've applied the blood of the lamb to their doorpost. And he's causing that destroyer um, to, to have pause, to have hesitation, to skip over. And so that's the idea. Um, and so we are in Exodus 12. He says, I want you to remember this throughout all of your generations. And it's like, well, why? You got to ask that question, you know. It's, sure, it could, yeah. it um, and fast forward, uh, you know, 1,500 years, you come to this event. And, I mean, this, take the city of Jerusalem um, where you've got the city of Jerusalem, some, some estimates say tripled in size during the festival of Passover. So you can just imagine your city that you live in tripling in size for several days if not longer, and what that would look like in your city. 
but people are going up to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Um, there's estimates of anywhere between 600,000 to, to a couple million people in this small city of Jerusalem. Wow. So all that's going to, all those people are going to spill out into the surrounding countryside as well. Um, but it's there that this four days, so let me back up a little bit, going to Exodus 12, we're told to bring a lamb into our homes. Um, the very first Passover, bring a lamb into your homes, watch it for four days. And then on the evening of the fourth day, you are to slaughter that lamb, take its blood in the black to apply it to your doorpost. Why are we exam examining this lamb for four days? We're looking for a blemish in the lamb. We're, we're watching its behavior. We're looking at its, it's um, making sure it doesn't have any deformities or anything like that. We'll fast forward now to Jerusalem, the Passover in Jerusalem. Um, this rogue rabbi from the Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, gets on a donkey and rides into his father's house exactly four days before Passover. Wow. And it's there that he begins to be examined over and over by the religious leaders, looking for a defect in him, looking to see, wow. is this man a heretic? Is this man the real deal? Is he, is he the blemishless lamb so that without even knowing sense. it? Yeah. So when they're asking him, you know, whose image or they're asking him, you know, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And they're trying to trap him and mm -hmm. all these things. They're actually fulfilling prophecy to point to the fact that yeah. it's a Passover lamb. Yeah, yeah. Like John, John Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away right. the sins of the world. And he's causing the destroyer to hesitate. He's causing the, the destroyer to go lame. So when wow. we take that the blood of that lamb, which, I mean, come the evening of the fourth day, as they are sacrificing those lambs for, for the Passover offering in the temple, he is dying on the cross outside the city walls. And he's, I mean, he's put in the tomb just as Passover is beginning. Um, so he's causing the destroyer to pass over the accuser, the, the adversary is he has to, he causes him to go lame because when we apply his blood on the doorpost of our heart, so to speak, um, when we accept his atonement over our lives, the destroyer has nothing against us. Wow. And we are redeemed from the curse of sin and death. He drank the cup of wrath that we deserved. Um, so Passover, yeah. as a follower of Jesus, takes on a whole new significance as we see that it's all fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, so he, I mean, it's no coincidence that you know, he chose that day to die. You know, it's like, so all 1500 years, it's in the collective memory of the people of Israel that Passover equals um, blood, you know, redemption, purchasing, um, a new beginning, a new life. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the pattern of redemption that we see. And then it's no wonder that on that day, our, our, uh, savior, our redeemer purchase us, us as his bride. And he brings us out of bondage to slavery, to sin and death. And then, you know, what do we do after we accept that salvation, that atoning work, we go to water, <laughs> you know, just like wow. the people of Israel came through water and immersed themselves yes. collectively as a nation, baptized themselves. What do we do? We go to water. It's one of the first things that we encourage new believers to do is you need yeah. to go find, we're going to find a body of water. We're going to immerse you in that water yes. and show that you're a new creation. Wow. It's amazing how all of those things are connected. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the person of Christ, and then how we observe those things as uh, the church. But, uh, you know, the one thing going through my head through all of this, do you remember that old cheesy Ray Bolt song, Watch the Lamb? Do you remember that song? Yeah, yeah, vaguely, yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you've never heard it, this like Ray Boltz was this cheesy Christian singer. Uh, I'm all about Ray Boltz now. Do you remember him? He was awesome. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. he has this song, and it's the cheesiest, hokiest '90s Christian song called "Watch the Lamb," and it's about a guy that it's kind of like a song that's a skit. I don't know, but I remember somebody singing in a Good Friday service when I was like five, and he was getting really animated in it. And there was a part where he like. <laughs> patomimed a roman soldier yelling at someone to carry his cross and so he pointed at my brother and said you carry his cross and my brother got so scared he like jumped in his seat um, oh man yeah but the whole thing i feel like the 90s the 90s was like a really um 
I don't know. There's a lot yeah. of exploratory things going on with Christian music yes. in the 90s. Yes, 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 yes. And I feel like Ray Bolts was leading the charge in that. Yeah. Hey, we can do a whole podcast episode on Ray Bolts. We should yeah. do a whole podcast episode on Christian music in the 90s. I, think I be- would love – maybe we can yeah. maybe we can get like Ray Bolts and Steve Green and Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's not doing anything. Uh, DC Talk and Newsboys. And yeah, like it's Pet- Petra. 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 Oh, I'm even started on that. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, how will you be celebrating Passover this year? Okay. Well, this is this is going to be really interesting this year because normally we have a big community seder. Like last year, we had um, over 100 people come. We had a big banquet basically. This year, it's going to be me and my family and a couple mm. other guests. Um, we got to keep it under 10 people according to um, the state of Alabama. So this is this is going to be a really interesting but biblical kind of way of celebrating. Oh, We're going sure. to be holding up in our home and and um, you know with a. a plague so to speak surrounding us but um yeah yeah we're going to celebrate it what we do is we just um we we threw these different elements on our table through these different um things these little edible elements we retell the story of passover using these different elements it's like a it's like a series of object lessons um that we'll be we'll be using to, to retell the story of, of passover and then we always one of the things i like to always do is tell the story and read the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of christ wow that's awesome man uh, my yeah. wife's family has observed a Passover dinner for the past 20-something years, and uh, mm-hmm. I married into the family, so you might say I've been grafted in. There so, you go. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it, uh, and this year it's going to look different for us as well. We're, uh, we're going to be just us as a family celebrating. So, uh, yeah, my, my father-in-law, we call him Rabbi, Rabbi Tom. Nice, thanks. Yeah, so it's going to be good. But, uh, man, good stuff. The pandemics, Passovers, and Ray Bolts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we got a lot of covered a lot of ground in the first. I think episode. so. I, I I really do. If only we could get the rights to Ray Bolts, watch the Lamb, and we could put that as outro music. But I don't know how all that works, and I don't want to get sued. So um, we'll probably abstain from that. But everybody, look up Ray Bolts, watch the Lamb. It's <laughs> super cheesy. And it, we Ray Bolts have, has a sudden resurgence in his career all of a sudden. <laughs> what is going on here? Yeah, what in the world? Anyway, well, Gabe, it's been fun. It's been real. Happy Passover to you. I don't know Thank how you. you say that. In- we say uh, Chag Sameach. Well, Chag Sameach. Hog? It's like ho- ho- yeah, or Hog Smack is what we say in Alabama. Hog Smack. That's, there's so much yeah. irony there with kosher laws and all that stuff. So yeah, it really is. Yeah. Anyway, all right, my friend. Next year in Jerusalem. Yeah, next year in Jerusalem. Yes, sir. All right. Keep all it real, right. buddy. Thanks for listening. Absolutely. Bye now. our show everybody if you like what you've heard make sure to leave us a review give us a share or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com